1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Mark Schuller. He's an associate professor in the anthropology department and at the Center for NGO Leadership and Development at Northern Illinois University. He's also an affiliate at the Faculté d'Ethnologie at Universite d'État d'Étienne. The book we're going to be talking about today is Humanitarian Aftershocks in Haiti, just published by Rutledge University Press. As many of you know, on January 12, 2010, An earthquake hit Haiti very hard, leading to the devastation of thousands of lives, as well as thousands of homes. It also led to an outpouring of relief money and efforts, well-intended, but by many accounts badly handled and often making things worse. The book takes us into one of the most fraught outcomes of the earthquake, which are the camps for thousands of people who lost their homes. Schuller's ethnography begins on the ground in the camps and exposes the making of fragility and vulnerability amidst do-gooders, NGOs, and local politics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. So I want to just jump into this book. This is not your first book about Haiti. Could we talk a little bit about how you became interested in the place and, I guess, in particular, the problem of humanitarianism? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So I was a campus activist with Amnesty International in the 1990s during the coup against Aristide, and a campaign about Haiti came across the desk. Uh, and I was also a member of a movement to fight racism in from Chicago, which was founded by a Haitian. Uh, and so all these signs pointed to an interest in Haiti. Uh, so I didn't know that. Uh, the founder of du- uh, DuSable, the founder of Chicago, is Haitian until I was a graduate student. And I was taking a class in world history with the, the French, the Cuban, the Russian, the Mexican, the Spanish, the Chinese Revolution, but not the Haitian Revolution. So the systematic way in which the United States ripped Haiti from our collective memory and were beneficiaries of the uh, manifest destiny through the, Louis- uh, the Louisiana Purchase when France lost and was losing Haiti. So um, that just sort of got me hooked on Haiti. Why humanitarian aid? So I was, um, after graduating from college, I was a community organizer for four years in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And to make a long story short, um, I was told not to organize to save a homeless shelter from being demolished because the, the, the group that wanted to demolish it was the funder for our hotline. So my boss told me, no, don't work on this. This this fund this funder as uh, a for-profit corporation, they left the city and they took their donor profile with them, and so they demolished the housing. They didn't build their new o- office that they were going to. They moved to another state, and so regardless, the people were kicked out, and um, we lost the money for a hotline anyway. So the question became to me: um, What is the impact of funding on and government on? On non-governmental organizations or NGOs. So humanitarian aid in particular became more important after the earthquake. Uh, I had to do a lot of catch-up after that because uh, the, the, my dissertation in my first book was about women's organizations, women's NGOs, and development funding. They're, they're related, but they're, you know, there's some important differences.
1: Yeah, and I, I hear what you say about the absence of the Haitian Revolution when we were in grad school because I had this very same experience and it's very interesting because I think that now there's a whole generation that's responded to that and there's a lot of stuff coming out about the Haitian revolution. So, mm-hmm. um, your book is really part of that. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, the argument of your book, I think is in the title. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by humanitarian aftershock. What is that? What is that term?
0: Oh, uh, great question. So, um, we were, um, we were, huh. so, so lots of folks were experiencing the earthquake. Uh, they, first of all, people in Haiti don't use the word earthquake to describe um, the situation. They, they call it the event, or they made up an onomatopoeia, gudu-gudu, to talk about it, because they didn't actually say the word troublematé. Uh, or earthquake, um, and most people in Haiti experience the earthquake as just the first in a chain of disastrous events. So people refer to the word disaster. They talk about um, what scholars call vulnerability, and they reuse the word so that the, January 12th, the earthquake date was the conjunctural crisis. It wasn't the structural crisis. So people have that language in Haiti already uh, that maps onto Western, quote-unquote, so, social Science scholarship on disasters, but most people that I talked to who were living in uh, certainly all that were living in the camps experienced um, the crisis as a, you know the earthquake was the trigger, but they, they were there they was a second aftershock of the humanitarian aid so I was in Haiti eight days after the earthquake uh, It was one of the second flights that the 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 u s military allowed private uh, flights allowed to land. Um, And what I saw, in addition to being you know horrified by the damage, was a really beautiful solidarity. Um, So I was in Haiti during the coup in two thousand four, the second coup against Aristide, and the the countries, the divisions that ripped apart the country in two thousand four, were suspended. So Lavalas and the Convergence, Aristide and his his, uh, uh, opposition, suspended their their you know their, their animosity. Uh, rich and middle-class and poor Haitians were all sleeping together next to one another on the street. Um, most significant was the, the the religious difference. So Protestants and saw left their divisions aside because it was all about one Haiti. Uh, so in my neighborhood, I, I did collect some money for some medical, there was part of a medical team, but I'm not a medical anything, you know, I'm just an anthropologist, so I collected some money also. And so we had money to buy a water truck. And so, the people in my neighborhood said, hold on, Mark, we can't buy the water truck until we know we can take it. So they had a meeting lasted, you know, a good 90 minutes. And, they de- and so long story short, they had a list of 31 people having 85 um, vessels of water uh, and precisely what who has what vessel of water. This is a pot. This person has a jug. This person has a cooking pot. This person has a, you know, a water bottle. Mm-hmm. And you know, they calculated, okay, so we're ready. <laughs> you know, that, that, that level of organization and solidarity, I mean, not just solidarity, it's, that's organization ability that is amazing. So that Haiti, so that there was a glimpse of another Haiti as possible, that, that, that Haiti was built on rebuilt on solidarity, rebuilt on, you know, a, a spirit of unity, one helping another. That was actually how Haitians survived. And Haitian people weren't given the credit for doing that work, and they weren't given the credit for being the people that were the first responders. Um, but that Haiti ended when the aid came. And the, the aid came when it, and it aid turned that solidarity into hierarchical top-down mini meat NGOs that are the camp committees, who are the conduits of aid and become all-powerful. And these are the committees that um, contributed to the problem of violence against women by transactional sex, for example. These are the these are all-powerful um, organizations that could give out two weeks' worth of rash, food rations uh, to women based on the, the gender guidelines. So um, that's why I'm calling it Humanitarian Aftershocks. And actually, I had to call it another thing first. It, the the title was actually clearer to me in Creole than it was in English. And it was a, it was another, you know, uh, it was Sekou uh, Sekou's, you know, Aid Sekou, Sekou's would be the the, the aftershock. So it just became clearer to me because I am translating this book into Creole so that folks in Haiti can, can critique it to use it or whatever they want you know, so it can be accessible um, and the title Sekou Sekou just became clear to me and that's what I was hearing in, 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 in people's analysis and so translated that back into English I got Humanitarian Aftershocks there's a title of a really great report Gender Aftershocks by um, a women's organization Fi, uh, and Christine Dadesky You know, so.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I want to ask you about uh, over the course of the interview that you just raised. But I think it's interesting the way that you describe the solidarity, and part of the solidarity, this really comes through in your book, is um, this act of thinking through the whole process, right? So if you're going to get water, you have to think about how, whether people will be able to take water. And that's something that you don't see happening with a lot of the sort of humanitarian efforts. It's so interesting that that was one of your very first
0: experiences, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, And I also, I want to ask you about the committees um, a little bit later, but I just, I also want to sort of talk to you about the, something that you raised in terms of who you're hoping is going to read this book because the book really reads as if there's a lot of urgency driving it. And we were chatting about this a little bit earlier and Mm -hmm. it's, it's the second book you've written about Haiti after the earthquake. And so I'm wondering if you see, it sounds like you see the book um, writing and publishing and especially translating it as part of a larger project of solidarity as the book sort of participates in that project. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So who is it so who is envision is the audience and what a envision is why I'm doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well a book by itself can't do a whole lot. Um, and what's the book what what books can do if they're you know being pushed? I mean so we've had the book release on January twelfth, the anniversary of the earthquake. I hope this would be ready for the fifth anniversary because the fifth anniversary was an occasion for You know, a media event to say how, where how have we gone, how have we done, uh, weaving, you know, quote unquote, the West, um, or the North, or, you know, foreign agencies. Um, so who, I I actually, so I, I I sent this book to some colleagues who work in, NGOs, and one of them in particular said, "You're too nice to us. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. You don't have to. You don't have to reaffirm our good intentions. We need to hear this." So um, I said, "With all due respect, my first book, the title pissed people off, so they're they're not going to read it." So some people are, don't like what I have to say just because they're they're affronted by what I write in Huffington Post and now Twitter. Um, I'm just starting Twitter. In 140 characters, you can't get to too much nuance, but a book, you can tell a story, uh, and so. Who have I envisioned as part of the, the... Who am I telling the story with and who am I telling the story for? Um, I'm telling the story with people in Haiti, uh, specific people in Haiti, people that live in the camps, people that are frontline NGO workers, people that are directors, country-level directors, people that are actually foreign humanitarians that came and wanted to seek me out. Who am I writing it for is all of the above. Plus, um people that make decisions about where money goes. So donors, um, NGO directors, students who want a career in NGOs, people that want to make use of this experience as their, you know, their notch in their CV. I was going to say a different phrase, but they're, you know, the, the, the must have, if you have experience in Haiti, your goal in terms of humanitarian career. Um, Bill Clinton and the UN special envoy for, for Haiti um And citizens who've contributed to the relief effort because, you know, we, the United States, I don't know about Canada, but I do know that the United States um, 60% of us households contributed in some fashion to the relief effort, 80% of African-Americans. And so in very real sense, we have a seat at the table that we're not even sitting in. And so I'm trying to hail those of us who felt compelled to donate to say, Okay, this is what happened. Here's the lessons that Haitian people are learning, and you know, uh, so for a doc to document what you know, the, some of the more difficult questions, the ones that can't be slogan, uh, you know, translated into a quick Huffington Post blog or a slogan. Yeah. You know?
1: So concretely, the book, as you said, mentions or sorry, deals with uh, internally displaced persons or IDPs. And the camps that many of them ended up living in after the earthquake. And you anchor each chapter. You you open it with a narrative or a little excerpt from a statement by a Haitian person who either lives or lived in one of the camps. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process of interviewing and writing.
0: Yeah, so I worked with a team... Of people, so I've been teaching at the State University of Haiti since 2004. I've been an affiliate officially since 2003. I work with a team of, of Haitian students. Um, so uh, I will, uh, so every every time I go back to Haiti, I teach a class and I have students as research assistants. So a lot of the, the, the camp level, all of the camp level interviews uh, were conducted by. A Haitian student and/or uh, a Haitian American student, because I was I was teaching at the City University of New York at York College in Jamaica Queens, which is a large Haitian population. So I had, I had five Haitian American, some of whom still have their Haitian passport, um, students come join the students in, in Haiti. So they they spent five weeks in the camps um, in 2011, a year after, year and a half after the earthquake. Um, and they, spent, they went every day. Um, so they, they got to be a known presence. They got to see what really goes on. They got to see you know, the aid distributions, if they were any. They got to see happenings like the president happened to show up, President of Haiti happened to show up in one of the camps. And he kind of, you know, who are the people that are the first, you know, people that present themselves as, oh, I'm the leader here, because they're the first people that show up. But then, you know, you, you're there for five weeks. You get to see who really is. Um, and this person just kind of disappeared. Unfortunately, people did witness acts of violence and stuff, um, as well as having to confront the realities of living in this kind of subhuman conditions. And so the interviews feel uh, gripping to me. Uh, I would show up. The reason why I didn't do it myself um, A, the scale, I couldn't do this kind of work by myself, but B, as a foreigner, as a white person, as a tall, white American, US American male. The only context people had to interpret me in my presence there is as an aid worker. So when I would show up, literally within seconds, there'd be thirty to forty people staring at me, talking to each other, saying, "Does he speak Creole? What does he? What does he want? Tell him this. Tell him that." So my presence really was disruptive. Um, I did go back to all of these eight camps after the first period was done, and I and I went and I visited each one of them until they closed. All but one of them closed, so there's only one camp remaining. You know, it's called a village. But I I went to them nine times over the over the, over the next three years, so I, I got a sense for these these people and places as individuals. Um, so the writing of it, um, you know, I had all this stuff translated, you know, transcribed and then translated. So I just was trying to get a sense for well, what are the themes that are emerging, and so um, the I just. Uh, had to make sense of what I, what I found, and really, like going through the transcripts, some of those are really... I mean, chapter two, I cannot read anymore because um, it's talking about the day of the earthquake mm. and uh, the specific trauma that people had because they felt powerless to help, and that—that that is how I felt as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wrote. So I I, I I anchor every chapter with these long, longish. Um, transcripts of these interviews with individuals that kind of set the tone. Um, and then, you know, just kind of seeing, I could have chosen a lot more, but I just sort of said, well, let's, let's, let's see what people in Haiti are, are saying. You know, so it's, it, I did quantitative research as well. Um, it's quicker and you can go, you can identify, you know, patterns that uh, that you can't necessarily with uh, qualitative interviews, but this, I really felt, honor-bound to, to, you know, if I'm taking ten minutes of someone's time, I'm going to do something real with it, you know, so and people in Haiti are intelligent, they're uh, they have a lot of experience and they're the ones who saw what was happening because it's their lives, and so in this book I felt the real compulsion to write that story not, here's, you know the, the journalistic story is where did the money go and that focuses the attention on the foreign aid worker and this book it does not do that, and that's intentional
1: Right. That makes sense. And um, so each chapter, you ended up, as you said, putting uh, sort of different themes in different chapters. And I found a lot of them quite surprising. It was really an interesting read. And one of the ones that I found the most surprising, that, and I, you know, done some reading about what happened sort of after the earthquake, but the idea that the aid structures actually encouraged the breakup of families, right? So mm-hmm. right. that it was this idea of a kind of nuclear, a kind of Standard nuclear family that would receive aid, and if that wasn't visible to aid workers, then then the fam- families wouldn't get aid, or they would get less aid, um, uh-huh. depending. I found, I found that really fascinating, and also just also what you write about the way that that families just responded to that and broke up their households and sort of apportioned people in different ways.
0: Uh-huh. Was that surprising to you as well? Uh, on one level, yes. On one level, no. Um, I was to be uh, completely honest. Uh, my first, so the Huff Post blogs were coming out. Um, thanks to Gina Ulis, anthropologist, performance artist, Haitian American phenomenon, um, she recommended to the editors. They were looking for other writers for Haiti, and so she said, "There's this guy, Mark Schuler. He did this video." look them up, and so um, so after the earthquake, I, within the first six months, I wrote like 15 pieces. Um, all of us were in that kind of very quick mode, and, you know, as an activist, as a solidarity activist, I was you know, really focusing on the role of the U.S. government, because I'm a U.S. citizen, um, and NGOs, that get U.S. funding, so I, I was, you know, Maybe a little bit in the the, the kind of where did the money go, gotcha kind of journalism. Um, so I was seeing very quickly, so I got pushed back. Uh, lots of folks did not like what I had to say in Huffington Post, and I heard a lot of it. I'm sure I only heard part of it. Um, people called me naive. People called me destructive. People called me, you know, just go back to being a professor, leave Leave the aid work to us. We know what we're doing. And don't you know that Haitian people are lying to us? Don't you know that Haitian people are cheating? Don't you know that haitian people um you know will just do whatever for for aid and so um but the data was clear uh, you know so like you you could either you could either look at it saying, "Well, uh, yeah, this is an example of how inflame the victim narrative, which is very very i mean a racialized narrative. It's a gendered narrative. Since the U.S., I don't know how uh, if it, there's a similar thing in Canada, but in the 1980s with uh, President Reagan trying to undo a social welfare state, there was a welfare queen, a black woman, that was getting three checks, you know, cheating the system. And, you know, that, that whole, it's a very continuous, very racist, uh, very... Um, pervasive narrative about Haiti, um, because obviously the, you know the the anyone who went to Haiti would see that there wasn't there wasn't progress being made, and so the the first impulse is to blame Haitians, is blame the victim. It's a very easy thing to do. Haitian people don't speak English, they don't have blogs, they don't they don't have computers, they they don't speak. Uh, they're black and they're Haitian, you know, and so that, that that's an easy impulse. And I got a lot of criticism for being naive. Um, and then I was hearing from my Haitian colleagues, like, yeah, we're cheating the system, but look, that, that I mean, not cheating the system. They would say, yeah, we're doing this, but you know, you set the rules for the game and we're going to follow them. We're, that's just being smart, you know? And then I was hearing from some of my colleagues that I've known for years and like, yeah, this is a huge problem because the aid, ca- aid workers came in and they, they redid our society in three years What took, you know, the, the industrial revolution, two generations to do, you know, uh, in, in in quote unquote the West, um, and so they were really concerned about Haitian uh, scholars as well as Haitian NGO professionals, and so that it wasn't just about cheating the system or being intelligent. It was saying these are the rules of the game, and these rules are totally inappropriate and imperialistic. So that part of it, I was, I was, I wasn't tracking on it, but then once I started to listen, you know, and you know, slow down a little bit. I, I was able to hear what, what some of the deeper concerns that my colleagues in Haiti were having.
1: So related to that uh, is the committees, the formation of the committees, mm-hmm. and I found that chapter really fascinating. And you make a you make distinctions between the kinds of committees and how they're formed, in particular, um, as essential to how they ultimately worked. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how you came to realize that that was so important.
0: Oh, uh, how did i well uh these committees became such a important piece of the aid delivery' they uh, were in, they're extremely visible um, You can't go to a cab without some guy, and they're almost all guys um showing up with a card that he made um you know like a plastic. You know, they went. They, they went and plastified a photo and said, "I'm in charge here. What do you want?" You know, and it's it's um, a lot of these people were um, nobodies before the earthquake, but because they spoke two or three words of English or Spanish, uh, they were able to be the conduit for the NGO aid. A lot of them were also church followers or pastors. Um, to a specific circuit of humanitarian assistance that went through the evangelical organizations. Some of them were even rumored to be gang members. I didn't pursue that part. It didn't seem to be relevant um, at the time. And it did seem to be a lot dangerous to be asking those kinds of questions. And so I didn't require any of my assistance to do that. Um But you hear in whispers all kinds of rumors. And you know that when you're hearing a rumor, to take it with a grain of salt, but um, the fact that they're rumoring about it is telling you something as an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Um, But these committees were totally separate from the rest of the the, the population. You know, my, my trick as an anthropologist is, like, I would just show up and unannounced. And, you know, these people say, oh, hold on, the committee person is not here. Because they don't live in the camp. They have to drive so that it takes them half an hour to get to the camp. It's like, oh, yeah, you just came from your house. You know, you just, you just showered. I can, I can smell that you just took a shower. So you're obviously not showering here. And sometimes I actually would confront them on that and say, yeah, yeah I don't live here. And it's like, well, then how, how on earth are you representing these people? You know, um, so, so these camp committees were the saviors. They were the ones that, you know, you had to have a camp committee in order to get aid. So that chapter talks about, in real detail, the, the, the formation of these committees in these eight camps. And they, they're all different in terms of the, the story, but the rules were the same. If you want aid, you have to have one of these.
1: But it and, sounded and have- to me it sounded to me like the committees that formed kind of more, if you want to say, more organically, right, that came out of the experience uh-huh. of the camps and people just started, started getting organized right away, those committees... Mm-hmm. You you seem to think that those were more effective than the ones that were formed by NGOs, by people who came in and said, you need a committee. Can you please form one?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I don't see that. Absolutely. Um, for lots of reasons. They had the organic, you know, relationships with the population. Uh, they came to the area. They they survived on their own. They did what they could with their own means to solve little problems. And they did. And they had the confidence of the population. They had the trust of the population. Um so absolutely. I think that, um, I can document that actually. Um, I could have been more specific about some of the results, but, um, yeah, I mean, seeing people, I mean, obviously I wasn't there in, overnight to see their, to do the patrols, but I talked to people that did the patrols. They said, yeah, I'm just a, I just, volunteering, you know, uh, uh, all I get is a meal, but I get the satisfaction to know that no one's going to come in, in this camp at night and steal anything, you know? Um, And what do you think about the camp committee? Oh yeah, this is excellent. You know, versus the conversations that I can have with people and said, yeah, who are they? I don't even know, you know? Um, So most definitely, and this, this, it actually, while I was doing this research, I was consult, this was before I joined the board of the Long Fund of Haiti uh, but I consult, I've been aware of the lobby fund of Haiti because uh, since my first visit to Haiti in 2001, I was um, – so I asked the field workers, how do you assess the organizations that are asking lobby fund for money? And they said, you know, don't let the leaders speak. Ask other people questions. Make sure you get marginalized people like women, like elderly, like uh, people that may have some visible disabilities, but don't let the leader say anything. You just have one-on-one conversations, and if you're getting different stories, then that's a that's a red flag. The other the other method is that you know, uh, Lobby Fund does not give money to any organization that cannot succeed at doing their own project with their own resources. Mm-hmm. So you're just dependent on NGO aid. You're just creating this uh, this dependency from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So I. Consulted with the lobby Fund to have my evaluation tools. This is in 2010, even before the, the 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 larger research. I mean, the more in depth research. But so I, I had some indicators early on, and so that, that those were how I got to those kind of questions.
1: Yeah, the on the ground ethnography is really fascinating. The way that you take us through the formation of these different and the dynamics in the different camps and the ways that that plays out. So. Um, I know that this book is not uh, centered on on NGOs, it's not focused on NGOs, but NGOs are part of the story, obviously, you can't really get mm-hmm. around that. And um, one of the things that you point out that's really true is that, A, it's really hard to to say what an NGO is, because mm-hmm. an NGO is defined by its negative, non-governmental status, right? And B, that there's lots of different Kinds of NGOs in terms of size, in terms of intention, in terms of where they're formed, um, all of those kinds of things. So how? So if we can step step back and say, how do you define an NGO? What's your What's your definition? And then, you know, this is a pretty scathing critique, but is there um, some way to think about some NGOs as being better than others? Are they all uh, mm-hmm. a bad idea? <laughs> no.
0: Um. so I'm I'm increasingly less and less comfortable with defining NGOs as a noun, as a thing mm-hmm. I'm thinking of NGOs as a verb, as a set of actions what they do, uh, what set of relationships that they build so in Haiti groups de- vehemently de- 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 deny that they are NGOs and the most cr- harshest critics of NGOs but they do things like write reports like um, create projects that um, you know so um, NGOs is as so NGO-ing so either do-gooding or activisting is the thing that we need to be looking for so collective action that is structured that is that institutionalizes things so as so so the social movements the word "social movements" is that they're going to move. So they, 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 they that is their job: um, move people, move, move decisions, move things, uh, uh, move activism, move conversations, uh, and move themselves. Like movements can go away, and that's okay. That's a movement. An M- so an NGO institutionalizes. Their their claims me. I did a I did a workshop at a conference on NGOs last November that we. 15 brilliant people in the room like, okay, what do all NGOs do? And, and so we had a hard time and we, we ended up coming up with a few. So um, Institutionalized claims making um, and really specific sets of uh, accounting um, representation. Uh, so these are the things that NGOs do. And so as a noun, yeah, okay, you could talk about big and small, international, local, grassroots or top-down, all of these are important distinctions, but what do they do? You know, So that, 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 to me, is more important, the lasting impact. So what I'm studying now is the long-term impacts, because both critics and defenders of NGOs make all kinds of assumptions of our long-term abilities to make lasting social change either good, quote-unquote, or bad. Um, you know, I have a documentary video that's right, published right before the earthquake, so it was a very um, used tool, at, after the earthquake to raise funds for groups like Partners in Health et cetera, and local mission groups so I was I personally screened it and I got to, I always predict that people are going to ask me a question you know is I understand your critique of NGOs but is what I'm doing okay are, are we a good NGO is this a good NGO I mean the whole evaluation in black and white moral terms uh, I get it I, I totally do um, but my you know it, it, the response is more complicated you know um uh, there's a really great collection of articles that um feminist scholars Victoria Bernal and Infa Graywell published in 2014 um few uh, ngos um and so they they're grappling with this uh, issue of like re, re um claiming ngo as a as a you know from the critique of the NGOization from within feminist uh, theory. Um, So, I mean, some of this is a, you know, it it is almost as if, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Wizard of Oz. Um, Glenda first makes her appearance uh, after Dorothy's house lands on the Witch of the East. And the first word out of Glenda's mouth is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? You know, and, and her response was, I'm not a witch at all. I mean, so that's a lot of what you could ask. Are you a good NGO or a bad NGO? And the re- reflex is, I'm not an NGO at all. So what do people have in there? So when they're criticizing NGOs, what are they thinking of? Um, so just document that. But the, the complexities of human action, the, it, it, I, I don't know how... Uh, the word assemblage from Deleuze and Qatari, um, it, that those are useful ways to think through. Um, these are assemblages of people that have, that may have completely different ambitions, they have completely different ideologies, they may be using the NGO for different purposes. So there's not one NGO at all. Um, it, it breaks down when you look at it ethnographically. So, But you can document the actions. So that's where I've been leaning in my definition. So, yeah, I am critical, um, and I have to be, um, because the the impacts of the aid, um, you know, it's not only where did the money go, but what did it do? You know, so it did a lot of damage, and that damage may not be permanent. It may not be longer lasting than the NGO themselves. But you know, those are those are questions that demand answers.
1: And you admirably refuse to give us easy answers. I think that's an important point in the book is that there aren't really easy answers. And, you know, you actually turn that onto yourself. You re- redirect the gaze at at some points onto your own position as a foreigner. You talked about a little bit about this earlier, mm-hmm. but I, I wonder if you could um, reflect on it a little bit more. And, you know, lots of, you have lots of moments in the book, when someone arrives at a camp, and the response is, "Oh, you're just going to ask some more questions and then go away and never come back," and why should I even bother, right? Um, yeah. So, how do you, how did you, and do you deal with that discomfort? How do you reconcile it in the book, or I mean, maybe you don't need to reconcile it. Maybe you just need to leave it there as something that exists.
0: Yeah, um, anthropology. We went through a self-critique in the in the '80s. The feminists. Critique the critique, and so one of the responses was reflexivity. Ruth Bayer um uh, Gina Ulysse's professor, was to say, just you know, it, like this whole in, in standpoint theory and feminist theory, there is no objective truth. What there is is standpoints, and and to be explicit and honest about it is the, is the goal. Uh, to be neutral is to be complicit. Um, so, some folks particularly younger white men, think of this as, oh, I get to talk about my, my little adventure story, you know, the, the Clifford Geertz's running away from the cops in the, the, the Balinese cockfight story, which is, okay, fine, interesting, but it doesn't reveal the research, doesn't reveal the processes, it doesn't undo the kind of positivistic fictions of uh, this is what Haitian culture is, this is what... You know, Dominican family structure is. This is what Rwandan religious ritual is. Uh, that was the old school anthropology texts, um, where, you know, these are fictions uh, in, you know, Crap and Sonos terms, and that's fine. But the discomfort that I was experiencing doesn't go away. It shouldn't go away. It is anyone who wants to do this kind of work. Has to interrogate why we want to do this kind of work. What kind of motivations do I have, um, and what am I getting out of this? You know, um, and you know, unfortunately, the the world system is as it is. You know, I, I was launching this book um, at the Haitian American Museum of Chicago, and someone just said, "Thank you for your work." It's like, why are you thanking me? You know, like you should be asking, why is it that a that a foreigner is the one that has to be validating Haitian people's experience. Why why, why why? can't Haitian people do that on their own? Why does it require me to document this and, and to justify and to give voice and to say this is a valid perspective? Because um, the world system is that it is, the inequalities that I still benefit from, even if I choose not to ignore. If I choose to ignore that, my U.S. passport gets me out of danger. My, you know, U.S., Government is keeping people out of this country. Uh, my U.S. government is sustaining this middle-class consumption lifestyle that is killing the planet, while making other people not able to do that through specific policies and specific uh, ways. That the the you know debt we call it structural adjustment. Yesterday, today it's called you know other things like development policy loans. But you know I benefit from this system. You know my parents move to the suburbs to avoid living in the city because I so I that I could have a good education. That was racist. I benefit from racism. We need to interrogate that. Um, I can pretend it doesn't exist. You know, I could just sort of say, okay, I'm just doing good, or and then it would be part of the problem. So in the book, I hope that some of my non-anthropology colleagues will forgive the a sociologist one person in particular said you talk about yourself too much mark you know and like well maybe i do um and if so if i tried to keep the focus on haiti i also tried to keep my perspective there so that people could challenge me and say i think something else and so i'm just giving you all the details i think is necessary for you to evaluate what i'm saying
1: so i was gonna ask you if you're arguing for the kind of curbing of the humanitarian impulse, right? Because I think it's pretty inevitable. We see something like the news of that earthquake, or even the more recent one in Ecuador, right? Or anything. Right. Um, and the impulse is, oh, I'm going to, you know, get online, give ten bucks, twenty bucks, whatever I can. Right. Everybody says it helps. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering. I was going to ask you if we should just. S- curb that impulse, but now I'm thinking I should ask you if we should go ahead with that, but in a much more thoughtful and reflective manner. Right. right.
0: Whew. If we felt the death of children for lack of water, sanitation, or food in Lesotho or Bangladesh, if we felt climate change in the, the forest destruction of communities in Alaska and Tuvalu, if we felt that in our gut, that this is a part of the problem and that we as a species, we as humanity need to respond because it's a crisis. If we felt that, you know, um, president Johnston, um, declared a war on poverty in order to marshal that public opinion that this is going to be a problem for us society. Um, Definitely worth critic you know worth a critical review as to how well that was waged um, and definitely wasn't successful in, in many ways um, but you know the, the attempt to call it a war on poverty suggests that there is something about the photo op that you know which is justifying the humanitarian impulse the disaster narrative uh, the book chapter that I wrote since writing this book, talks about theorizing a disaster narrative. Haiti's earthquake was, uh, like Benedict Anderson's global imagined community, that this was, you know, fashioning us as a global humanitarian subject, as a global humanitarian community. And that is good. That, I mean, that is precious. That, That, those moments of human solidarity, I think, are worth doing. But do we feel the same sense of impact? You know, when when there was terrorist uh, attacks in Paris and in Brussels and they killed X number of people. And then the same week in Pakistan, twice as many people died that nobody cares about yeah. because they're brown or subjugated or colonized people. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So it does require, unfortunately, something like a disaster narrative to get us to be generous. And so we need to respond in their when there are, you know, in the Haitian terms, conjunctural crises, but we also need to feel that same level of urgency about climate change, about poverty, about structural racism, about environmental racism, etc. Um, and until we can do that as, as, a, as a species, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to be stuck with this humanitarian impulse. So, how do we do it responsibly? That's what I'm trying to get at. And maybe that didn't come through in the book.
1: I think so. I'm, I'm actually one of the as we get towards the end of the interview, I I want to ask you about getting back to Haiti. Sort of, um, it's not a book that leaves people entirely without hope, right? There are a few hopeful things that you talk about in the end,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and maybe you can just mention a couple of those.
0: Right, right. That was a choice as an author as well. Because uh, I was trying to document Haitian people's analysis and Haitian people's successes, whenever possible. And I know I'm going to be criticized for not going far enough in my first book. But lots of colleagues in Haiti think that I'm a, a reformist. I'm not radical enough because I, you know, don't tell. I don't say NGOs all have to go tomorrow. And in fact, this was repeated a few weeks ago at the Haitian American Museum, where, where people really do feel like, okay, the, the solution is NGOs all go tomorrow. You know, um, so. Uh, why did I choose this? Uh, so the, the so there is hope. There is. I I chose to say. Well, what do we? What do Haitian people learn? What do they? What are they? What are the? What was the import of the solidarity? What lessons do, does humanity or should humanity have taken from from this experience? And so there are some, and you know, there's some specific suggestions of how to improve uh, humanitarian, to rip humanitarianism from empire, to make humanitarian. There's always been a debate. A humanitarian to development continuum. And so, you know, you've got to have humanitarian inter, um, interventions in the development framework, because um, Haiti was quote unquote stunted in the in the relief phase. That's because of racism. And, uh, you know, there, you have to think in terms of uh, the context. If, there, if the government didn't have the capacity, well, then give it the capacity. Um, so those are specific suggestions. You know, um, humanitarian aid was about life-saving um, assistance is way more expensive because logistics are more expensive. So contract that out. There's, there's some specific suggestions. Um, uh, also, some success stories in Haiti, like in Gracie, where uh, human- humanitarian agencies have to negotiate with the local NGO. And the NGO became an NGO officially in the process in order to create jobs, to create a factory, to do that kind of uh uh, scale up of that work, um, but because they have an organic relationship with the population, and because they've been there for 30 years, because they know the field, because they know they have a relationship with the people, they know what to defend. And most humanitarian ag- agencies were not used to working with them as locals. But so so the so the conclusion ends with this with this experience, and, and I use his real name, Jean Baptiste because the group Etica. Uh, their their experience is so singular that I couldn't have talked about it without naming them. So I figured, why not name him? And he said he's okay with it. So those experiences about uh, success stories are uh, important. Uh, and the very end quote, you know, was saying, you know, we need to take stock and do better next time. That's that's not saying you know humanitarianism should should go away. It's actually a, a real humanitarianism would require something like an anthropological imagination with radical empathy that we are all people. If you look again differently at the struggles like black lives matter, you'll see that some of these are the same struggles that, you know, who needs to be considered human, whose humanity matters, whose lives matter. And these are, you know, these, these specific nodes of connections of solidarity I think are hopeful.
1: So we've taken up a lot of your time and you've given us a lot to think about and one Final question, which is, what's next for you? What are you working on?
0: Uh, I uh, just launched a website, politics I'm starting to feel what it's like to be tendered, so I can be a citizen again, and not just uh, <laughs> I'm not afraid to, to write what I think. Um, so that's activist, you know. So do the Margaret Mead thing of taking what I learned from the field back home, uh, but also be more specifically. Engaged citizen. Um, I, when I say the word citizen, it means it can mean bad things too, like exclusion. In, in certainly the United States, when we're talking about the wall, in, in Europe now with the crisis of you know the Syrian refugees. But citizen in the more in the more engaged sense, you know that. Um, but my scholarship. So um, I have a, a five year grant to study the long term impacts of, of humanitarian aid, of NGO aid. Um, so there's eight field sites. I'm going to take eight student, graduate students from the United States, pair them with eight graduate students in, all across the south of Haiti. Half field sites had NGOs before the earthquake, half did not. Half of them were impacted by the earthquake, half did not. So it's, a, it's another structured, you know, what we call purpose of sample. So five years of data collection, very, very big, very complicated logistically research, and I'm kind of nervous about it. But hopefully they'll get some answers about, you know, what power NGOs actually have. And so theoretically there's some, projects I'm finishing up. I am trying to document theorize the humanitarian impulse, but I'm also calling you know talking about anthropolitics, the the radical empathy, you know, the the politics of the people power, what it means to be human. And I'm trying to sharpen what I mean by anthropological imagination. So these are theoretical projects while I do while the big data is being collected.
1: Those sound like fantastic projects. I'll Thank, Thank you so much for talking to me today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Branchman, and I hope you can join me next time.